Thanks for listening to The Derivative. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as legal, business, investment, or tax advice. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of RCM Alternatives, their affiliates, or companies featured. Due to industry regulations, participants on this podcast are instructed not to make specific trade recommendations nor reference past or potential profits, and listeners are reminded that managed futures, commodity trading, and other alternative investments are complex and carry a risk of substantial losses. As such, they are not suitable for all investors. Welcome to The Derivative by RCM Alternatives, where we dive into what makes alternative investments go, analyze the strategies of unique hedge fund managers, and chat with interesting guests from across the investment world. everyone this is Allie the behind the scenes producer of the derivative we're doing something a little different today by flipping the script on our host Jeff Malik and sharing a podcast where he was the guest giving you the chance to learn a little bit more about the man behind the questions and today is his birthday after all so what better opportunity while I've got you I'd also like to give a quick shout out to Jeff Berger our graphic designer and audio wizard who cuts up the podcast each week So, uh, today's conversation is going to be moderated by the team over at Mutiny Fund, talking about Jeff's humble start on the trading floors in Chicago, trend following, common threads between successful investors, and much more. Thanks for listening, and enjoy. So, I'm Taylor Pearson. I'm here with Jason Buck and Jeff Malik. We're going to be talking with Jeff today about his background and the futures industry. Uh, I want to just kind of jump in. Jeff, how do you feel about Harley-Davidson? I love Harley-Davidson. Uh, I'm the great grandson of Walter S. Davidson, uh, who is my mother's uh, grandfather. So we're very proud of the heritage, but I've never been uh, a bike rider. The my mom's father worked in the factory. He died when he was forty something, uh, mostly of asbestos and can lung cancer. Uh, but through their life, they never let the girls. He had three girls, and they were never allowed to ride bikes. So. A, I appreciate that you called it Harley Davidson, because we're the Davidson side. A lot of people just say, "Oh, you're Harley." Yeah, like, Harley's no, a no. more memorable, I guess. Davidson's. Yeah, and then the Fletch Two movie, Chevy Chase went into that one bar and said he was Ed Harley, the grandson of Harley Davidson. So sometimes I get that, but uh, yeah, we're proud. I'm not talking to you from my private island, so it hasn't been a uh, financial windfall, but a lot of proud. We go to the hundred year reunion. Uh, or the, every five years they have the 105, 110 up in Milwaukee. So we go to that and participate in the activities. My uncle's a member of the Iron Butts Club. I don't know if you're familiar. I, think you I don't thousand, know that one. You have to ride 1,000 miles in like three days or something. Nice. Yeah. Good it times. is cool. When you go to those reunions, they have uh, the parade, and there's like the Brazilian hog, hog is the big thing, Harley Owners Group. So there's the, like, from any country, any city you can imagine, and they ship their bikes over there, and they're coming through downtown Milwaukee, proud as can be. It's a great brand, passionate, yeah, passionate consumers. Yeah, it's cool. It's in some trouble these days with millennials don't, aren't buying into it, but. It's always the millennials. Always. Uh, you were a philosophy major in, in college. Um, what, what was the thing, you know, I guess, why were you a philosophy major, first of all, and then what, what do you feel like had the biggest impact on you of, of what you read, of what you were studying? Well, the why is a little bit embarrassing, but uh, the <laughs> I wasn't very good at uh, getting to... You had to sign up for classes, which seemed weird. Just let me sign up for whatever class I want. So you had to get there in time and like basically put your names in to get to the classes. Philosophy was not a big uh, 
demand. So I'd miss the economics classes. I wouldn't get in time to sign up for a lot of those classes. I had a big theory of the first week and the last week of any school year are kind of wasted. So I would show up a week late and leave a week early, like as soon as my tests were done. But it came to turn out that that impacted which classes I could take. So long story short, the philosophy classes were the only ones left. And this was freshman, sophomore year until I figured it out and got to take the classes I wanted. But by that time, I'd had all these philosophy credits built up. Um, so I said, hey, I like it. And it taught me how to write, taught me how to think. Uh, so I don't really view it as, what was the second part of the question? What was the thing you read that had the biggest impact on you? Yeah, I don't think there was any like uh, big thing like that. To me, it was just more learning how to think yeah. and being challenged. Um, I'd have to say, if I had to pick one, probably be Thomas Hobbes, yeah. who's the life is nasty, poor, brutish, and short. Uh, that was my thesis, was the ir irrationality of human cooperation. So kind of went into that's our natural state, and then we naturally also figure out that we have to cooperate or else we'll all run each other over in the streets and whatnot. So, yeah, I'd say that one, a bunch of other random weird stuff, Nietzsche, fun. Uh, but, yeah, I, don't, I never really looked at it that way. They're kind of like all old, dead, mostly white guys. Yeah. I feel like you sort of dodged it, but my, my theory is like you either want to go like hard math and sciences or like history or philosophy. It's like the social sciences in the middle where you think you're doing science and you're really just like making stuff up. Yeah. Like at least with philosophy, I was a history major. At least you know you're making stuff up. Like I'm, yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm just like exactly. picking random data points and telling stories about them. Like let's let's not like. And it's actually interesting the uh, the far edge of philosophy, and you get into logic, and it gets very mathematical. So that was some of my favorite classes. Oh, actually, were the uh, the logic classes and some of these guys who were with words and and whatnot proving some mathematical theories. That gets into my buddy, the old Santiago George Saunders Peirce was the American philosopher that was like the founder of logic. And they, so they say he's kind of the inventor of binary digits, which lead to computers and everything because it comes from, you know, logic background. But I think the most interesting part that you said is like it taught you how to think in the way like maybe or or how to question your thinking, because like everything in school is always additive here. Memorize this, memorize this. And we're teaching you something. We're trying to pour information into your head where then you get in philosophy class and they're like, wait, why do you think that? What's the definition of that word? Like what's your priors to that? And so it, it forces you to be a much more uh, disciplined thinker in a way. For sure, and if right, there's probably a lot of banks that would have loved for their uh, analysts and risk managers to have questioned VAR and things like that. Of like, no, don't just take this for for what it's worth. So, yeah. What does explain VAR for the listeners? Uh, VAR is value at risk. It's a uh, standard deviation based risk measure of you'll never lose more than one percent, ninety nine percent of the time. So it's kind of based on the normal bell curve, but as we know, we don't live in normal bell curve land, so. Right. What's the Anchorman quote? Works 80% of the time, every time. Yeah. Or my favorite one, 96% of statistics are misleading. <laughs> right. Yeah. And then how did you end up um, in the, the bond futures pits? How did you sort of end up in finance and, and the Chicago school and all that? Well, as a philosophy major, I went to uh, live in Aspen, Colorado for a year and a half after school. Top destination for philosophy majors. Uh, and was slopping chili on the mountain there and, you know, living the dream. But you're looking across the place of the people you're serving the chili. You're like, eh, maybe I want to be that guy. He seems to have it pretty good. 
so moved back to Chicago. I was born in Chicago, raised down in Vero Beach, Florida, but uh, moved back to Chicago where my dad was, uh, his wife at the time, which is a whole nother podcast, but <laughs> his wife at the time put um, made a connection with a guy she knew on the trading floor, so started there as a clerk. Uh, didn't last terribly long down there. It didn't fit with my personality. It was kind of loud, crazy, and I was always asking, like, you know, and I was in the bond pit at the time, which was, they had just built the new room at the Board of Trade. I think you could fit a 747 plane inside the room. Uh, there were multiple pits. The 30-year bond pit was the largest pit. And, uh, you know, I we'd rally, I think that was the time of the Asian... Uh, bond crisis like 99 ish and would be you know millions of dollars changing hands i'm like why why did we rally what's going on and they'd be like because billy's buying so for, for someone that's like never seen like what set, set the stage what is like a typical day what was a typical day in in the bond pit like what was the there's a big room just a big open room you could park a 747 in there a bunch of dudes holding up pieces of paper yelling at each other yeah, so it's very three-dimensional, too. So the pits are all raised, and there's, you know, it's kind of a ring, an octagon. The middle, I don't even remember what the middle is for. There's no one really in the middle. Then there's the first ring, the second ring. The best guys have either the third or fourth step up so they can see over and do everything. And then uh, they're all, everyone looking into the pit is trading with each other. And it was all go watch Ferris Bueller's Day Off, that scene where they're, looking through the thing and Cameron's doing all the hand signals, pretending to do them. That was the, that was called arbing. So, you know, face, if your hand palms facing out, you're selling. If your palms facing in, you're buying. And it was one, two, three, four, five, normally. Then you turn your hand sideways, six, seven, eight, nine. Then a finger on your head, 10, 20, 30, 40. Fingers on your arm, 100, 200, 300, 400. Uh, I don't remember what thousands are, but. It was that whole code. And so they're screaming at each other because you can't hear. There's thousands of people in this huge room. There's probably 200 people in the bond pit itself. And they're trading with each other. And then they just have a little sheet of paper. So the, I'd look over at you, Taylor, 200, 200. And you say, 200 sold. And then my badge would be J-E-F and yours would be T-A-Y. And they'd just scribble in the most unintelligible way possible. T-A-Y 200 at 2840, whatever the price was. And then rip that off. And they had a hard card that they'd put in their pocket. Rip off the carbon copy, hand it to the clerk. Uh, the clerk, at the end of the day, would go find your clerk. And they'd match up the trade. So in today's world of Globex and, you know, digital automatic trade matching, that's crazy, right? Right. But it wasn't that long. It was 20 years ago. I mean, it wasn't that long ago. Yeah. Yeah, and so then my job was I've the brokers are all looking inside, trading amongst each other. Then I would be back to back with him, looking into the option bond option pit. So the option guys are doing their options, and then they need to delta hedge. So as the market's moving, they're in real time looking at me, saying buy two hundred buys, and I'd turn around and tell uh, my guys to buy, and then they'd do the trade with the other guys. So the, just the sheer amount of paper. Is, would be blow your mind. Like there's no way it could exist today just from the, you know, environmentalists would be like, this paper's got to go. Like there'd be literally an inch to two inches of paper on the floor at the end of every day. Can you explain uh, delta hedging real quick for 
audience? Yeah, so if you have a uh, option position as the as the position gets closer to the strike price, so in the bond, say I was short a 106 call or something, as the and the prices are at 102, uh, the delta of that 106 call is the amount the option moves in relation to the uh, underlying market move. So as prices get closer to that strike price of the option, you know, if it goes in the money, the delta is one. It's basically just becomes the underlying then. Um, so these guys would have all these complex option positions on. And in those days, they had a, another piece of paper in their pocket. And they'd constantly be looking down at the uh, sheet to see, okay, if we move this much, my delta is changed by this much. And I need to add uh, futures. Is so that, they're, they're market making. So they're just trying to stay delta neutral. So they don't, they, they don't care which direction the market moves there. Uh, probably not market making. Most were trading their own money or whatnot, but they wanted to be delta neutral. So they're just trying to scalp the volatility of the option or um, have some other concept inside of options of what they wanted to do. But yeah, they didn't want to be directional. So they're selling, you know, they think they get a good price on the option. They sell it. They want to hedge out the directional movement as quickly as possible. And then do you think it's a bygone era of like, like you said, these guys are a lot of them are trading their own money. And it was a, a unique era in Chicago times where like these guys would go down the pit, they'd trade for those few hours in the day, you know, and they'd, and they'd walk away and they were buying houses cash or whatever or they, you know, their P and L would, you know, fluctuate tremendously throughout the year, but it was all eat what you kill. And we don't really have that physical sense of eat what you kill in the markets anymore. Yeah. I'd say the closest thing these days is probably the crypto space of so people who could just get in for next to nothing and made millions of dollars like and it was a huge and chicago was proud of that because it was very differentiated from new york where you had to go to the right schools and get the right internship and get onto the trading floors chicago was like if you were an aggressive guy and you know push your way onto the floor you could you could make a killing and a lot of guys did without any education without anything so for sure, it's a bygone era of nowadays, that's all computers talking to each other. And when you said the bond pit wasn't for you, is that because you're a philosophy major and you're not an enormous dude? I mean, you played football and everything, but like typical bond pit guys were like big dudes and they're spitting on you, elbowing you. It's like, it's a very physical job in a way too. Right? Oh my God. Yeah. So two things. One, there were a lot of guys who, they're, they're all big guys. There were fist fights, you know, once a week probably. Um, Two, they all had some sort of vice, at least one vice. So a lot of them to keep going during the day would dip, you know, have the chewing tobacco. And so where are they going to spit it? So they have their dip cup that they're spitting in inside their jacket. And so to complete the picture, everyone has, you, the rules are you had to have a sport coat, essentially. So that became super loose and they're all like mesh, right. custom and then you want to, it's like being a peacock. You got to stand out. So if everyone's trying to sell you 500, you want to be the guy in the big loud coat that the eye catches. So like our uniforms were these red and white candy striper kind of coats. Other guys had purple or yellow or, or whatever color. But uh, yeah, many times I'm in the, in the thick of it there and a guy gets bumped and his dip cup gets pushed out of the jacket onto my arm or leg or whatever. Yeah, that's, so some of that was like, what am I doing? But for me, it was, it was less the physical side. It was more the mathematical. Like no one could tell me mm. why bonds are rallying. And they're finally, they're like, oh, cause Goldman came in, they're buying them from upstairs. I'm like, well, I need to find out what's upstairs. 
And so that started my progression of like, all right, I'm getting off the floor. I'm going to see what's going on upstairs. And upstairs was manage money and big firms, hedging and things like that. So let's get into that. What, you know, you mentioned sort of like the New York versus Chicago school. What, how do you like explain that, that difference? Like what, how are they distinct? Well, my favorite thing to say in that regard is New York doesn't have alleys. So they, <laughs> they pile up all those trash bags outside their $30 million condos and uh, Chicago has alleys. So we're much better in that regard, much cleaner. <laughs> but, uh, well, the, cl- the main thing, right, is New York is stocks, New York Stock Exchange, Chicago's futures. Uh, so Chicago grew up on the agriculture futures, Chicago Board of Trade, hundred and whatever years old. And that crowd, Chicago was sort of like the center of like agricultural trade. It was like in the middle of the country and where the railroads came in. And so you were like farmers were shipping in soybeans or whatever, and they were doing trading futures on them. Exactly. And, uh, I always tell people new to futures, like it's not what you think the price is going to be in the future. It's agreeing on a price today for future delivery. Right. It's like I'm growing some corn and like I want to hedge out, you know, right now the price of corn is $18 a bushel, but like it could go to 25 or it could go to 12. And so, okay, I'm going to sell some today at 18 and lock it in. If corn prices were at $18 a bushel, you'd have billionaire farmers. It's like $4. Yeah. But yeah, so a farmer would be like, okay, I'm going to come to Chicago and someone's going to agree to buy my corn that I haven't even planted yet for four dollars a bushel and so you're like great i i know i can plant it harvest it get it all out of the ground for 360 so i can immediately lock in that 40 cents uh profit right and walk us through i know how did you get how did chicago sort of how did that grow into you know what what it is today what is sort of you know i've heard it sometimes ctas manage futures uh, futures you know how did that what is that sort of industry how do you think about that how did that grow out of the um so the there was the agriculture futures, corn, wheat, all that stuff, grown in the ground, commodities. And then the uh, that was all Chicago Board of Trade. Then Chicago Mercantile Exchange launched in the 70s-something and uh, came up with the idea of we're going to trade currency futures, um, Swiss franc, yen, things like that, which exploded. And then they started adding stock index and a lot of other stuff. And then you had, you know... New York Board of Trade, cotton, sugar, all these things. So managed futures, CTAs. Uh, John Henry was actually one of the first ones who's the Boston Red Sox owner. So he was out of Boston. But it essentially was trading all those different futures markets. The classic example is trend following, or the classic approach to that was trend following. Uh, and this ties back to turtle traders too, which some people have heard of. So in the Merck pit, uh, sometime in the 80s, Bill Eckhart and William Dennis, uh, William Eckhart and Bill Dennis, um, had a bet, like straight out of trading places. Like, I bet they were arguing, I think you could teach people to be great traders. You have to give them these rules. And those rules were essentially kind of a trend-following approach, only risk a set amount per trade. Uh, and they taught many people, some of which are CTAs today, that have continued on and been very successful. So the managed futures space was born out of these out of this futures trading uh which was highly right the futures contracts are internally leveraged so the back to the corn contract i can control 
uh, call it $25,000 worth of corn for putting $800 margin in my account. So, right, that's inherently risky. And people were trying to do that on their own, whether in the pit or calling a broker or whatnot and losing a lot of money. Uh, so managed futures came along and said, hey, we're going to put some rules around this. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to play... I'm not going to only put in $800 to control that corn. Or maybe I put in $50,000 to control $25,000 worth of corn. So kind of institutionalized it, controlled it, put a model around it, and uh, started to become a, a big asset class. And was that like a regulatory framework, or that was just investors started to say, like, I'm not going to do this <laughs> highly leveraged thing? Yeah, I think it ties back with the turtle trader kind of concept of just, you know, yeah, people are like, there's a lot of money being made there. I don't need... 80% volatility, like, can we get 10% volatility and make 20%? That'd be great. I don't need to be back to Jason's things. People are buying houses and cash. And I have friends whose parents were traders back in those days. And they'd be like, we had a new car. The car got taken away. We had a piano. The piano got taken away. So there was constantly like all this volatility, not just in their PL, but in their lives, right? We got a new vacation house in Michigan. Well, now we're back to Indiana. So it was just controlling that volatility and, and attracting outside investor capital. And so the C CTA is commodity trading advisor. And so what's happening is that you have the corn, the cotton, the whatever futures in there. And these guys are coming in and they're setting up these trend following rules and trend following. Well, you want to explain like trend following in, in general and then like how it applies to CTAs. Like what, what, what's an example of like a trend following CTA strategy? Sure. And I, you know, they're known for, they did great in 2008, made like 18% while stocks were down, everything else was down. Um, and I'd say it's not magic. They didn't predict the crash. They didn't do anything. They're participating. You know, imagine a, a band of, you know, one standard deviation above, one standard deviation below prices on any chart. They're just putting that on a chart. When prices break above the upper band, they're going to buy hoping it's a breakout and it's going to continue for weeks or months or when prices break below that band, they're going to sell and hope that it keeps selling off for. So there's no magic there. They're just doing that every time it breaks above or below those bands. And it's not a very efficient trade, but they're doing that every time to ensure that when it is the big move that they catch it. Right. And then they control their risk by saying, I'm only going to risk one half of 1% of my equity or 1% of my equity. Uh, on each of those trades, knowing they're probably only going to be 30%, 40 uh, profitable. So on the on the ones that do hit, though, they're huge outliers. And they're capping the downside because if it, once it drops below one standard deviation or whatever, they're using their they're out of the market and they're sitting in cash. Right, and it's waiting. like a uh, you know it's kind of synthetic put buying. So you're you're controlling what how much you risk. You're kind of buying or not put buying, but option buying. So you're controlling your risk you're only spending a little bit of money of your capital to participate in all those moves hoping that the uh the final outlier move happens and they you know it's counterintuitive to most people but they tend to they joke about they buy high and sell even higher or yeah. they buy there they sell low and sell even lower where it's the opposite of most people want to do especially when they think about like value investing they're trying to buy low and sell high they, that's why it's called trend because they, they believe that humans are very emotional and rational and we tend to herd. So if prices spike higher, they're trying to get in 
thinking that that's going to run along or if spike prices crash down, they want to ride those trends as we get emotional and overshoot the target, so to speak. For sure. And it was, and it was one of the first quant models, right? It was one of the first people to use computers to trade markets. Uh, and it's essentially a strategy where you're plotting all the, and some of these early guys were doing this by hand of taking in the data every day, putting it on charts, actually drawing charts and saying, okay, we've broken above the one standard deviation of, of average prices. Now I'm going to buy. And today, right, that can all be done in two seconds on any number of platforms. But uh, I was one of the first to put an automated systematic model onto the, onto markets. And then what, like talk through, you know, you could get exposure to the S&P index through an ETF, or you could do it through the futures industry. You could trade options on S&P futures. Like what a, what are the pertinent differences between, like, why would an investor choose to use futures as opposed to equities or equities as opposed to futures? Like, what are the what are the trade-offs and differences? Sure. Uh, I'll, I'll back up a second and say part of that managed futures classic portfolio also is broad global exposure. So I'm going to have about a quarter of my risk in fixed income futures, which is 30-year, U.S. 30-year bonds, German boons, Japanese bonds. Uh, then I'm going to have about a quarter in currencies, yen, franc, British pound, Aussie dollar. Uh, then I'm going to have a quarter in row crops or grown in the ground commodities. So corn, wheat, gold, crude oil. I guess I don't know if we'd say crude oil is grown in the ground, but comes out of the ground. Um, and I, I pulled a Rick Perry there. I can't remember my fourth you one. And equity, sorry, equities. equities. Index, Thank you. Yeah. yeah. And then equity indices and global. So on S&P, Hang Seng, uh, Aussie, German, DAX. So at any one time, and you're not trying to catch any specific trend. You're just trying to spread it across. Or if the whole model is markets, cluster, and then they break out or break down to new highs or to new lows. They phase shift to these new things. So the whole, whole concept, if I just did that on S&P, I could go years and years and years waiting for that phase shift. If I'm on five different global equity indices, there's a better chance that one of them is going to break out. If I'm on five different market sectors now, energies, currencies, interest rates, even better chance. If each, inside each of those buckets, I have 50 different things. So the whole concept is I want as much exposure as possible. I'm going to be playing 600 hands at the blackjack table and I know risking only a little amount and knowing that at any one time I'm going to go on a big run on one of those hands. Um, so going back almost to the start of Taylor's question, what he was actually you know, asking about in, in a way is like, you know, he brings up futures, managed futures, CTAs. Now at RCM, you guys are calling them alternative investments. This is a, a marketing problem that I know makes you want to rip your hair out. But it's like now everybody gets told by their RIA that they need to have a global portfolio and they're trying to implement it through ETFs. But the guys that were trend following CTAs have been doing this for decades in the most global portfolio you could possibly imagine that you just laid out. Like literally everything in the world, they're trading, yet almost nobody knows about it. So how do you like, I don't know if you if you could, you'd be a billionaire, but how do you overcome that marketing problem with futures, options? and? Yeah, and it, it's compounded by the, the thing. We're talking about one slice, this trend following that we've been covering, but then there's discretionary ag traders. There's professional energy traders that are doing different things. So you, and that all comes under this managed futures um, umbrella. 
So, yeah, I don't have a good answer for that. Just the way I, yeah. my under, because you think about futures and equities, like there's, uh, there's difference. Like you know, one of the things we talked about is like counterparty risk, right? So if you're doing a big options trade that's over the counter in the equities market with Goldman Sachs, Goldman is your counterparty, and if you know if they blow up or whatever, um, you don't you, you have that counterparty risk. Risk yeah, futures so is more like mark to markets, cash based. You don't have the same counterparty risk. So like, are there other sort of like pertinent differences like that 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 you think like investors should be aware of? Yeah. So the classic ones are. Excuse me. The uh, futures get sixty forty tax treatment, which actually comes back to there was no difference in tax treatment, and a bunch of the Chicago traders would at the end of every year uh, basically buy new stuff. To they did like a tax spread on the calendar, and the feds came in and they were going to like take all these guys down, and they somehow lobbied and got this thing put in for sixty forty tax treatment. So no matter if you trade every second of every day. 60% of your gains get treated as long-term capital gains. 40% is short-term. So that's a huge, huge benefit, especially the more active you are as a trader. Um, the other thing, as you mentioned, there's no counterparty risk. So the exchange backs every trade, uh, which is how the whole futures market works. If you had to worry about, you know, I buy this corn future, I have no idea if the guy who sold it to me is going to be able to deliver. The whole thing would fall apart pretty quickly. It's sort of an issue in the crypto space is we, there isn't a centralized thing by design, but right if people have a problem trusting that who's on the other side. Uh, so the futures markets fix that by each exchange, which was CME, CBOT, NYMEX, has a guarantee fund. So in the case that the counterparty, if you are JP Morgan, I'm Wells Fargo, whatever we do the trade, say one of those banks goes bust, the CME will step in with their guarantee fund and say, I'll make you good on that trade. So you got the tax difference, the uh, whatever I just said difference. Counterparty risk. Counterparty difference. And then the uh, leverage difference. So as we talked about before, the leverage is built into a futures contract. Uh, if I want to buy, so I can control you know, $150,000 worth of S&P by buying one E-mini and putting up $6,000 worth of uh, margin or whatever. I don't Explain know. Explain what an E-mini is. E-mini S&P is the uh, electronic small version of the S&P futures, which gives exposure to the S&P 500. So it's a easy way to get trade the S&P a little cheaper. And then they actually came out with micro minis, which allows you to do it for even cheaper and less money. But so that leverage is built in. If I want that same exposure in stocks without putting up as much capital in a stock account, I have to post, uh, they're going to charge me 50% margin. They're actually going to charge me for borrowing money from the bank to buy that full nominal amount. Whereas in futures, it's embedded in the, in the, in the contract. And I think it, this is a good place to point out that typically when people hear leverage and especially leverage in <laughs> futures and options market that usually scares people away right away. Understandably so because you should be afraid of leverage and, and but leverage is a two headed beast. It cuts both ways. So going back to what you pointed out earlier, if going into the futures, I can trade 60 global markets and I can have on hundreds of bets at the same time. Well then using that cash efficiency of that margin and leverage now makes me much safer 
So not only can, you know, leverage be used to hurt you, it can be used to help you. And that's kind of the beauty of the futures market that most people don't understand is it allows me to put on a a broader diversification of bets across global markets, which makes a more uh, robust, safer portfolio than I could ever possibly attain with equities because I have the cash efficiencies of being able to cross margin those different markets. Yeah, for sure. And that's, I agree 100% with that. That's, it's got a bad connotation of leverage where in the futures markets, anyone who knows what they're doing, it's like that's the main, main reason they use futures versus uh, an equity component because they, they don't have to put up all the cash, right? So if I have to put up 100 grand to control 100 grand, that's gone. If I have to put up 10 grand to control 100, guess what? I can do something else with my 90, which in, a, in a, anyone's futures count, you can buy T-bills that count as collateral. So right there, you can get an extra whatever, 2% a year uh, to just do what you were going to be doing anyway. But then the more sophisticated, and as Jason's saying, okay, I'm going to take that 90, now I'm going to buy a few more things, which if you're doing that poorly could be um, over-levering. If you're doing it into non-correlated things, uh, it's it's additive and can, can grow. And I'll also add, so uh, people like our clients at RCM who trade multiple professional managers, multiple CTAs, they prefer futures and managed accounts because they can put up a million dollars and have it traded as five million dollars uh how because of this embedded leverage so each manager might say their min their minimum investment is one million dollars uh, and that gives you this you know fake numbers here that gives you a 15 percent return with 12 percent volatility okay if i'm willing to have a 20% volatility, I can put in a little less cash and they still trade it as a million dollars, which is notional funding. We're getting a little off the rails here, but the whole concept is they can trade all five of those managers with just the one investment, uh, which you can't do anywhere else besides futures accounts without borrowing actual money and paying a yield to borrow that money. Yep. Yeah. The key thing, as I understand it, right, is the, uh, yeah, you get paid you get paid to take leverage as opposed to paying to take leverage. So that's nice. And then what the CTAs are trying to do is like, well, if you're using that leverage to buy things that are diversified, you know, if you have two assets and you know, when one goes up, the other's going to go down. When the other goes up, the other's going to go down and they're offsetting each other. You can use that leverage safely. Right. Cause any, you know, and that's what the, that, that's what the CTAs were kind of trying to replicate with their global trend following. Right. Is that yeah, it's and a I, big diversified basket. I'd be careful saying safely, but the, uh, <laughs> Because people can for sure do it. Right, we don't know unsafe. the correlations you're going to hold into the future. Yeah, exactly. So I think it's it's less about that and more about. So if a a trend following CTA has a one million dollar minimum, they only actually need to put their strategy on their average margin to equity. What they actually have to have in the account per the exchange and in the rules is probably on average one hundred twenty thousand dollars. So twelve percent. So why then don't they say their minimum is one hundred twenty thousand? Because A, their volatility would be like 50% and no investors would sign up. So one, it's just a bit of window dressing of, hey, I can't put it at the minimum I need because it looks too volatile. So I'm going to say I need a little bit more. And that's back to what we said a little earlier of like, instead of trading 25000 worth of corn for $800, I'm going to trade $25,000 of corn for $50,000. So one, it's a bit of window dressing. Yeah, it's a basically you can leverage Excuse or deleverage is what you're saying too. Yeah, so essentially the CTAs build their model, see what it is, and then they deleverage it by and make it look, okay, what kind of return stream would attract investors? 
and in in the first days, like John Henry, when he launched, he was doing 40, 50, 60% with 30% volatility, and people were into that. These days, if you go much over 10, 12, 15%, you're going to spook a lot of people. You have the million-dollar guy. All he needs is 120. He's going to window dress it up. But the investor still only needs that 120. So instead of putting up all the million dollars, they can only put up, and there's rules around it. Usually most CTAs don't want you to put in the bare minimum because if there's one week of losses, then they need to ask you, hey, send in more money. So typically they'll only allow two to one or three to one. And then you pointed out uh, three of the biggest benefits to futures markets. Um, and, and a fourth that I always loved is that depending on the manager you invest in and depending on what you structure and negotiate with them, you can have what we call the SMAs or separately managed accounts. And what I love about that is it almost eliminates the possibility of like a Bernie Madoff scenario of him like falsifying trades because on a daily basis, you get a, almost a window into what your manager is trading. And, you know, given the cash settled markets, that's the, the other, I guess, benefit A and B to this idea is that it's cash liquid market. So not only are you able to kind of see the trades to make sure they're not going off off the rails or using excessive leverage or anything, but you can also go to cash on a, a daily, weekly, or monthly basis. So you can, um, you know, there's no lockups like you would see in like a hedge fund space where they, you know, they're down 10% and they lock up your money for two years. No, these things are cash held markets. We can go to cash right away. We can also see what our managers are trading. So that way, you know, they're, they're sticking to their knitting, so to speak. Um, and these are things that I think that, are not talked about enough is the benefits of how do we mitigate any sort of even like Bernie Madoff risk with an individual manager. This can take care of 99% of that risk. Yeah, that's a great point. So in practice, how it works. So you're going to sign up with CTA, super duper CTA one, how you've been tracking, you like all the performance. Uh, he or she, let's say she, let's be uh, progressive. So she's going to send you an advisory agreement. You're going to open a futures account with someone great like RCM. Uh, they're going to put it at a FCM, a lot of M's, but uh, that's just the firm that owns the exchange membership and you do your trades and clear your trades through that, that firm. So it's called a clearing firm. So you open an account there. It's your account. It's in your name. You can call tomorrow and say, send me my money. Then you give our super duper XYZ CTA uh, power of attorney to place trades in that account but also they have to follow a disclosure document. They have to follow their rules. They have guidelines, so they can't just willy-nilly do whatever they want. Um, so they have to do their program in your account. So they're placing the trades with that account number. Um, and then there's several additional layers of risk there as, as well. So say they mess up, hit, you know, buy 1,000 instead of buy 100. That'll go through that clearing firm to the exchange. There might be uh, gates there of, hey, this CTA for that account don't allow any orders that are more than 10 contracts. So there's some like fat finger protection there. Um, but also they can't, the manager can't call and say, send me a hundred thousand dollars out of that account. So the money in that account can only go back to the person who funded the account. Uh, where right versus a fund or made off, you were sending the money and it was all commingled and he had control and he could, you know, write himself checks or do whatever he wanted with that. And then you mentioned RCM, which you work with. Tell us a little bit about, about RCM and like how y'all fit into the, the futures CTA space. Sure. So uh, 
I'll back up. So after the training floor, I came upstairs. I bounced around a few different uh, brokerages. One had an owner that drove a Lamborghini and wore leather pants. <laughs> so that almost spooked me out of the business. But uh, <laughs> left there, ended up uh, starting my own firm in 2002, attained capital management. Uh, we launched our own CTA in 2004, ran that up to about 75 million bucks. Uh, had a few industry issues. MF Global went bankrupt. PFG guy stole some money. We were, uh, had exposure to both those. So eventually shut down the CTA, took a bit of a hit in our business, built it back up. That was 2012. Built it back up through 2015. Uh, and the industry was consolidating. Regulation was getting more expensive. Uh, you had to have tech. You had to have websites. So merged in with RCM in 2015. Um, and our... Both of our models were complementary, but you know the essential thing we do is is help investors find and access these professional managers. So we have a database of thousands of managers. Uh, I came up with a proprietary uh, ranking methodology where we rank those managers across several different metrics, and then also not just these different metrics, but across time frames. So my in seeing all these things, you always had a there was an old trader called Rosetta Capital who made like 80% in their first year and then like 5% every year after that or something. And But their compounded rate of return was off the charts. But I kept looking at it. I'm like, well, nobody wants that though. That's not, so we came up with this model that time-weighted the returns across one, three, five, ten, and all time and kind of averages those and then gives a score to each one. And, and, uh, and that happens across all the metrics too. So it's, a way to, you know, compare apples to oranges and compare across all these different metrics that are important to people. Uh, so we have that database. You can build portfolios. You can blend different managers. You can see um, all the statistics there. And then we're doing the actual physical face-to-face -face, uh, due diligence on these managers also and understanding what they do. And my personal feeling is you can run all the math you want, but if you end up with some guys that, on paper are non-correlated, but they're all doing a similar type of trade. At some point in the future, they're going to be very correlated and it's going to hurt your portfolio. So kind of RCM's MO and my personal MO is you got to put managers that are fundamentally non-correlated together as well. And by that, I mean doing different things and having different return drivers. And what do you mean by fundamentally non, what is it? What is a non-fundamental correlation as opposed to a fundamental correlation? Well, so I could just, in the database, be playing around all day and come up with this great portfolio and all the managers have 0 0.04 correlation with one another. But if I dig deeper, I see that manager one is doing volatility breakout on a daily bars and manager two is doing it on 15-minute bars. So maybe statistically they've been uncorrelated, but they're sort of doing the same thing. They need volatility, they need breakouts to new highs. So it's just a little bit of me personally not trusting the math or Jason probably has some fancy word for it, but um, like that it won't, it just hasn't happened yet. So in my view, if they're doing something similar, they're going to be correlated. It just hasn't happened yet. And it's not showing up in the math. So I have a distrust of the math based on that. And what fundamental non-correlation I want, if I've got that guy doing this volatility breakout, I want a discretionary ag trader who trades hogs based on, calling around 
you know, 500 pig farms and seeing what demand and supply is. So they're just fundamentally different in what they're doing. And another way to look at it to almost simplify is like statistical versus fundamental correlation is the science versus the art or the math versus the art. So you guys have the ability and you guys are pretty much the only one in this game that has an amazing platform where all the math is there for you to look up. But then you have all of the personal experience and the art from the 30,000 foot view to say, you know, decades ago this happened and these things were fundamentally correlated versus uncorrelated. Or you go, look, I've been in the game for years, you know, decades. I know that hogs are actually correlated with the Swiss franc. Whether people, whether statistical correlation has not been there for a few years, over the long run, these things are fundamentally uncorrelated. So it's it's this combination of uh, math and art that is uh, very rare to find in any financial space. And that's what you personally embody, and that's what you guys are trying to do at RCM. Yeah, I would call it math and philosophy. Um, full circle. Full circle, right. But, yeah, and so then RCM, uh, so we're helping investors in that manner. We're building these portfolios, and then we help the, as we said, you open an account, the manager advises, manages that account. So we actually clear uh, like 13 different clearing firms from small Chicago-based guys up to, you know, JP Morgan and Wells Fargo and whatnot. So depending on what kind of client you are, if you're a high net worth guy with $500,000, we'll get you to this clearing firm that'll accept individuals. If you're a $50 million family office and have to build a fund of one and do all this, you know, sophisticated stuff, you're going to probably go to a bank FCM. Uh, so in addition to building the portfolios, we're give, uh, introducing accounts to all those FCMs. Uh, then on the manager side, we help managers by matchmaking with the other side, with the investor clients, and helping them structure funds, helping them with their clearing, with their execution. Uh, then we also have a algorithmic execution uh, division, which is super complicated and kind of cutting edge stuff. But essentially there's, as everything's gone digital, there's bad actors out there, prop firms who are trying to scalp and take advantage of people naively buying and crossing the spread. These execution algorithms computerize, have anti-gaming theory, all sorts of things that kind of help you not cross the spread and not get preyed on by those, uh, high frequency guys on the other side. Uh, then lastly, we're doing uh, some interesting stuff in China now where we've set up a Chinese woofy, they call it, holy foreign-owned enterprise, and uh, bringing signals, bringing uh, Western CTA signals through our Chinese partners there to trade Chinese money on Chinese futures markets. So uh, Western people aren't allowed to put their own money in to trade Chinese futures markets, but they're highly volatile. They're kind of like... Uh, the markets, Western markets in the 80s, highly volatile, directional volatility. So some of these classic trend following and, and classic models are working really well there. But you can't get Western money in there yet, but the Chinese money has a big desire to have it traded. So we're working on facilitating some of that. Just what you said about, uh, you know, directional volatility in China being like 70s and 80s in our markets. Uh, and obviously, the next question for our audience is, how do you view even like the cryptocurrency markets using like classical trend following? Yeah, I just was here down at a conference talking about that with someone. Of why don't more managers have it in their portfolios? Because it's, yeah, it's the same thing. Like, hey, why go through all that trouble to get into China? Do that. You have it right there. And, you know, and there's only one futures market right now, Bitcoin futures. But for sure, that's that's the same. That's the kind of volatility that people like. And there are managers who have outright 
crypto Bitcoin futures programs, managing and kind of probably more volatility breakout shorter term than classic trend following. But yeah, to me, every CTA should have Bitcoin as one of the markets they're tracking and trying to catch those trends. Uh, the, the issues are there. The clearing firms were spooked from the beginning. Uh, so our corn example, you know, have put up $800 to control 25 grand in corn. Most FCMs are saying Bitcoin, you have to put up $25,000 to control 25,000 worth of corn. So it kind of removes a lot of the benefits we were talking about earlier with all that embedded leverage. But still, if it's going to be one market out of your 85, like I think it should be added. So we kind of started working together because, as you said, y'all have this big database of managers, and we were trying to, to do the due diligence, and you're you know, managing billions of dollars across all the CTAs and have the, the infrastructure and stuff um, set up to do that. But I'm, I'm curious, like, in terms of, you know, you work with a fairly sophisticated investor base. Like, if you were sort of, like, looking at, you know, the median retail investor that's got a job running a business and, like, managing their own account in the background versus, you know, the people you're working with, like, what are the... What are the big differences? Like, what, what, what do you feel like the lessons are that you've taken from that that investor base? To tell you the truth, I don't think there's that much of a sophistication gap. It's kind of crazy. Like the, and I hope not to offend any of our clients who are listening to this, but some, I'll say in the far past, I've run across clients who are like, you must have found your money in a bag in an alley, because there's there's no sophistication there. So. A big part, I don't know if there's that big of a sophistication gap. Um, the perform They chase performance just like retail. Yeah. Uh, they panic and get out at the wrong times just like smaller guys. Um, yeah, I think the, the biggest difference is the, the smaller investor can only, you know, it's a minimum game. So the larger investor can see a lot more things, things that have $5, 10000000 million minimums. Um, but there, there's also a flip side. I'd rather be the smaller guy and be more nimble because these the sophisticated institutional investors, they end up only being able to invest in this super small sliver of managers because they have their check boxes of, okay, you have to have such and such business structure. You have to have all this cybersecurity stuff. You have to have this, this. And as you go down and have to check all those boxes, you might end up with, you know, six managers across the world that qualify. I, th- I know uh, IPERS, Iowa's pension, like four years ago, put out a, a RFP basically saying we're going to put a hundred million to work in the CTA space. Request, you know, submit your things. And I should have at the time, but I was going to write a blog post of just like, "Hey, Iper, save your time. Here's the six managers you're going to end up with. Like, don't go through this whole stupid process and interview all these thousands of managers when there's only six that check your boxes." And this might be, uh, to Taylor's point, and this might be just subjective to me, but I always had the uh, gut feel or inclination that the future traders, like you're saying, in the bond pits or those pit traders were very entrepreneurial. They're trading their own money. Uh, a lot of times the people that are going to invest in futures are high net worth individuals that actually are the, the first generation wealth. They're the decision maker. They're an entrepreneur. So it to, to me, it always felt a really alignment as an entrepreneur dealing with Chicago guys that are entrepreneurs and then, then creating trading systems or trading global markets in a very... Uh, statistical entrepreneurial way it just seemed like alignment of entrepreneurial fun you know like it just it's a almost a perfect alignment do you see that a lot with your clients a lot of entrepreneurs first time definitely and a a big uh, 
common denominator across our clients. We tend to have these engineering type, whether outright engineers or just that kind of a mindset. And the entrepreneurial mindset, I'd say, is a lot of them are engineering type. There's a problem. I'm going to figure out a way to fix that problem. Uh, you know, even if it's not, I'm not saying like mechanical engineering, but just the process of like, I need, I need to have a process. I'm going to go through that process and get to the result. So you definitely have a lot of the clients who have that mindset of not just blind trust of like, no, I, I want to understand how this guy's applying a, a model to a market. And the better I understand that I'm more willing to invest instead of right of 80% of the rest of the world's just like, well, I golf with Jim and he says, this is a good thing. I'm going to invest in it. Right. I've been interested, like the people that I've found that have known the most about the CTA space in like my circle has been poker players. And I guess, you know, something about like the way they, they obviously they understand risk in like a more sophisticated way than, than most people. But like that, the global asset allocation, the trend following, like that, that seems more intuitive to, to that crowd. Like every kind of poker player I've hung out with has always been like CTAs. For sure. And, and get super deep in the weeds here, but it's all probability based, right? The best poker players are saying, okay, I've, Got, I think there's a 20% chance Jason's on a flush draw. I've got a straight already, like, and they're just doing the math. And then, okay, there's that much in the pot. If I risk X, I know I'm going to get Y. So they're doing that math in real time in their head, which is impressive. Um, but that's essentially what the advanced CTAs are doing, right? Of Okay, here's the market setup. Uh, the pot is, I think it could move this much. I'm going to risk X. You know, so it's it's a similar mindset for sure of, okay, I've got probabilities and I'm going to risk certain amounts based on those probabilities with an expected return. And by the way, I can backtest all that and see how it would have done in the past across many different markets. And before, I mean, I'll try to keep it short without going on a rant that'll start a whole other podcast. But as as we know, the my favorite part um, about the CTA and future space is we talk about your return to drawdown is your risk. You know, where a lot of other spaces now are talking about, you know, volatility as a measure, measure of risk. And, you know, I, you know, I love the, the line, like, why did we let a 22-year-old University of Chicago define what risk is? Where for entrepreneurs, it's about, did you lose my money or not? That's your drawdown. Not how volatile are the cross-asset correlations. It's like, what is my return and what is my drawdown? At the end of the year, did I make money or lose money? And the managed future space has been pounding the table about return versus drawdown since the start. So they always understood that from the entrepreneurial perspective. It's like, it's about what I can eat at the end of the day. And I can't eat a sharp ratio or my volatility. I can eat returns and, and, and I can not eat with drawdowns. Explain what you mean by who's the 22 year old that we're talking shit about. And then uh, what's the, <laughs> the sharp give, ratio. Yeah, give, give the, give the unpack the sharp ratio return to drawdown. Um, so Jeff actually probably knows the history better than I do, but the, the idea of Bill Sharp coming up with the Sharp ratio is that um, it's based on volatility, and volatility is based on a look back, and, uh, and the look back is your standard deviation over time. So, you know, based on, you know, your Gaussian curve of one standard deviation, two standard deviations, it's basically, um, you know, how volatile is this asset over time? But it, as, as you would assume, you're saying over what look back period? So if I look back over a week, I'll have a certain volatility. I look back a year, certain volatility, 10 years, volatility, you know, it changes over time. So when people are talking about the sharp ratio, they're taking their return divided by the volatility over the time frame they're looking at. And that's how, that's what we call the efficient frontier, portfolio construction. And that's what everybody uses to kind of match up their 
portfolio based on volatility. Now, volatility doesn't necessarily correlate to your drawdown. And so you can have a low volatility, but a high drawdown. And drawdown means from peak to trough, if I'm, you know, I'm at $100, if I, if I go down to $70, that's a drawdown of $30. So I've lost $30. And my volatility might not have changed very much over that time frame. So the, this goes back to the, actually the idea of math and art or math and philosophy is you can work out the math of your return to volatility and you can line up your portfolio to be very efficient to have the best return to the volatility, but you could still have your drawdown could be massive. And so I don't right, mortgage backed securities is the example I right, always give, right? Like right, the, low the vol. volatility of mortgage backed yeah. securities in like early 2007 was like extremely low, right? So, exactly. like by using sharp ratio and like the historical yeah. volatility as a measure of risk, it's like, oh, this is an extremely safe investment, which is what everyone was doing. And then, you know, that's how the whole thing blew up. And that's why, you know, everybody's actually searching for, you know, high sharp ratio, which means low vol. And think that's what you should be searching for. But almost to Taylor's point, you should be looking for the opposite. If somebody has low vol and a high sharp ratio, you should be looking for how do I lose all my money? Because right. that's most likely what's going to happen is because they have a, a barrier point there's where you lose everything. There's there. an embedded risk that you're not seeing and you're going to lose everything. Yeah, yeah. Not, my natural knee-jerk reaction when I see low vol is there's you have hidden risk. You just haven't found it yet. You haven't hit it yet. Uh, so, But back to your question on drawdown and yeah, the CTAs, I think it probably comes from a place of they're rather, were known for rather large drawdowns. Um, and they're sort of exact opposite of the stock market. So the stock market, you're taking in little consistent gains, little consistent gains, and then you have a huge loss, right? So they say it takes the stairs up and the elevator down. Uh, CTA space traditionally has been the opposite of that. You're taking little loss, little loss, little loss, and then have an outlier gain. Um, but those little losses can add up and be, you know, the death of a thousand cuts. And that is what gets reflected in the drawdown. But you see them much more frequently because that's the kind of the natural state of them, of their losing, losing, losing until the big, uh, big outlier move. So, yeah, you have the drawdown. We've actually run some stats on doing a, an efficient frontier, which is usually done with return and volatility. We did a return and drawdown. Yeah, and it's the managed futures asset class is like way better than stocks than anything else. It makes me think of like you were talking about earlier, your proprietary metrics that you developed at RCM, which I always liked about them is you risk weight based on per unit of risk. What's your return per unit of risk? And you're using like drawdown for per unit of risk. And yeah. that's very unique instead of using volatility. Yeah. And so it, to me, it's all like you're saying the, I need to see the investment through the biggest thing to right if it's, if I'm down 10% and then back up the next day, that's volatile, but I'm fine, right? Like, it, I didn't feel it. If I'm down for 23 months in a row and sitting down negative 22%, um, that's a big problem. You're going to, somewhere along the line, you're going to be like, this isn't working, I'm going to get out. And invariably, you'll get out right before it goes on to make new highs. So it's it's two parts of drawdown. One is the magnitude, and the other is the duration, which is part of our risk metrics as well. So, right, you can have something that has a super low drawdown, but if the duration is three years, like, you're never going to stick with that. Yeah, I like that you always had that as like, yeah, if I'm in drawdown for three, yeah, there's no chance, like, I'm not, I'm not getting back to even. So what does it matter? It's like, it doesn't matter at all. And then the other thing we didn't point out about Sharp is that the volatility is standardized both up and down. And so 
do we really care about upside volatility? No, we care about downside volatility and Sharp doesn't take that into account. So you could have a manager that they have extreme volatility to the upside. So they're making huge gains or small gains, huge gains or small gains, but then their volatility on a Sharp, they're going to look terrible based on a Sharp ratio. But yeah. it's not accounting that the, for that volatility is only to the upside and they're mitigating the volatility to the downside. For sure. And that was the birth of the Sortino ratio, which is returns over downside uh, deviation, not just upside deviation. The proponents of the sharp would say, hey, but large upside volatility uh, portends large downside volatility. You just haven't seen it yet because they're saying there's no free lunch. You can't get that large upside volatility without risking low downside volatility, which I'd say is patently false. Right. You can set up asymmetric return profiles and say, no, I'm risking very little and waiting or and for the outlier move. And that's how I get the high volatility. I'm not getting the high upside volatility by risking a lot. I'm getting it by structuring the trade in a proper way. Would this be oversimplification? If you can think about Chicago versus New York is like future uh, commodities versus stocks is CTAs commodities will take a lot of small losses and take large asymmetric gains where New York and stocks will take a lot of small gains and large asymmetric losses. Is that too much of an oversimplification? No, that's, I love that. That's yeah. perfect. I, I wanted to start a Twitter account. That was like five years ago when, uh, I can't remember, someone in New York was talking smack about Chicago and like, you are the second city. And so I wanted to just have a Twitter account that every day was like, we have alleys, you have trash. Yeah. <laughs> I can't, that was as far as I came up. I had to come up with 365 <laughs> more, more stuff there. But then, yeah. And then uh, as, as... Right, we have futures, you have stocks. Yeah, yeah. as we talked about a, a, a million times, and what always um, boggles my mind is like, so if you take those two dichotomies of like Chicago versus New York, um, commodities versus stocks, is if they have these two different return profiles, it's like, why wouldn't you combine both of them? And if you combine both of them, they might offset each other and you might end up... Um, with with a better portfolio overall and that's what we're always working towards is like if you combine you know these short volatility and long volatility assets you up you upgrade to a better holistic portfolio that you can hold for a lifetime yeah and that was 2008 right the and people get confused i think with diversification oh i wouldn't have lost money no you had if you had managed futures and you had a significant not significant maybe you had 10 percent, 15 percent allocated to manage futures the your drawdown was less because it was making money the long ball was making money as the short ball stocks was losing money and your duration was much less so it's back to that concept of okay i'm adding this to make my worst period less painful and less long which drastically you know um, non-symmetrically increases your odds of sticking with the investment and that's the biggest thing to me like if you, once you get out you're done. So it's like, how can I structure things to make sure I don't get out of equities? I'm saying like, and how many people, you know, they say this is the most hated rally of all time because people just got totally spooked and moved to the sidelines in 09 and 10. When if you'd had something that kept you in the game there, you were, you're going to be way better off. And just to keep reiterating what you said, because you're one of the people I hear speak about it the most. And it's such a rare thing about the duration of the drawdown. You love to harp on that. And I appreciate how much you harp on that because for example, in equities, you can go an entire decade without getting back to even. Yeah, or let's look at the Nikkei. In Japan, they went, I think, 30 years uh, until there was a new high. So, yeah, that's, that's the, the whole game. That's the painful part of it. Can I make it to new highs? Um, yeah. 
all I got to say about that. Jason was telling me earlier that uh, Gold once took your mother out to a nice seafood dinner and never <laughs> called her again. I, I wanted to see, is that is that correct? Um, leave my mother out of it, but... Um, <laughs> How do you how do you feel about gold? What's tell tell us about your thoughts on gold as an asset? Well, class. I was golfing once at uh, Bandon Dunes, the lovely Oregon resort, and this was back. At gold had made some moves higher, and the caddy at he's like, "What are you doing?" I was like, oh, "I'm kind of hedge funds, commodities things." He's like, "What do you think about gold?" He's like, "My mom owns some bars." <laughs> I was like, "The total magazine indicator." I'm like, "All right, a caddy's telling me his mom owns gold bars. I think I'm going to sell tomorrow." Um, but I told him, I say, you know, I'm in Warren Buffett's camp, which is rare. But And this one thing, like he says, if aliens were watching and we dig up gold out of the ground, we try and buy and sell it to someone else. And then whoever buys it, sticks it back in the ground with a guard. Like they'd think we were insane, right? Like, what are we doing? Um, so just, and it has limited economical use, right? Maybe on some stereo equipment or whatnot. Jewelry. Okay. But so to me, I just don't see the economic purpose of it, which you could argue same with Bitcoin or anything like it's just valuable because people think it's valuable. Uh, but more importantly for me is you have, right, we have an infographic, we'll put it in the show notes um, of five different crisis periods, uh, which was like long term capital management meltdown, surprise Fed rate hike in 91, uh, 9-11, Internet bubble burst financial crisis 0809 so five big market moving uh crisis periods in stocks gold averaged a gain of less than one percent across those five crisis periods so right it's it's not doing it for me as a diversifying or crisis period there then people will say no well you need it as an inflation hedge uh and i looked up some stats here from 1980 to 2000 it lost 80 percent on an inflation adjusted basis so since then, it's done pretty well since 2000, whatever. But I don't know. I just don't understand the uh, I understand why people like it. I just personally don't like it as either a diversifier or an inflation hedge. Well, that's what Artemis would argue that even since like 2000, like you pointed out, it's actually gold has done better on a purchase power parity than even the stock market since 2000. Like, yeah. So it's like and to your point to, to back up what you're saying is like we think about it in purchase power parity, but people go with the 5000 year history is like over the large spans of time get that purchase power parity but is it is it really going to keep up with inflation when you need it to or is it going to be during a risk-off event is it going to provide you with those returns it's hard to really know then you're so i yeah that defense but also like as you know like it, this is a hotly debated issue and after like 20 years of studying gold i still am uncertain i just <laughs> i just don't know like you're saying is it is it a, a barbarous relic or is it currency yeah i i mean yeah if i had a you know, the Italian job, if I had a big safe full of gold bars like that, that'd be great. But um, I'm not going to seek it out or steal it. But to me, and we've debated before, like inflation to me is a amorphous thing, and I don't really know what it means. Like to me, I'm, I have kids, I have medical bill. Like it's education inflation and medical inflation. Those are my two biggest inflation uh, levers and personally. So does gold solve those problems right there's things in your personal life that can see super inflation like private tuition in chicago taxes in chicago 
no matter the amount of gold I own, it's not going to solve the tax increases on my properties in Chicago. So it's just, it's an imperfect hedge at best for inflation. But do you think, do you think what we do agree is that if we think about probabilistic bets across global markets and we think about the uncorrelated nature of gold trading versus maybe other commodities or stock indices or fixed income is it's, it's important to include it in a portfolio for an uncorrelated trading vehicle, whether you believe in the value of gold or not based on inflation or purchase power pairs. I, uh, yeah, I love having it in a trend following portfolio. I don't That's necessarily I mean. want to buy and hold. Yeah. Yeah. So for sure it's a, it's a tradable asset and should be part of any tradable portfolio. And that's why I think what's great about um, portfolio construction is we can debate the fundamental merits of gold all day, but who really cares if, if, if it helps our portfolio, just put it in there and we trade it. Yeah. And back to my other thing, right? If the, if the math works out, which from a non-correlated standpoint, it pretty much does. Um, and the fundamental reasons work out sort of right. Of, uh, yeah, it, I, both those things, I can put it in a portfolio because it checks both those boxes, even if I don't wholly believe that it's it's the end all. And I'm I'm curious whether, you know, Taylor could speak better to this, but if Bitcoin uh, kind of surpasses gold as the, which they would love, and that's the part of their theory, right, of the holders, but that it would surpass gold as the de facto, like this is what you want to own in case global currency, government-controlled currencies go bananas. Right. I guess my working thesis is it's a, it's a bad inflation hedge, but probably a good hyperinflation hedge, right? Like in, I don't know, Weimar, Germany, you pick some scenario, you know, one in a hundred scenario, one in a hundred year scenario of, of yeah, hyperinflation. And Bitcoin that, or gold? Well, either, that's the argument for both, right? Which is yeah. the, the stock-to-flow ratio is low. You can't, you know, you can only dig up so much more gra- gold out of the ground every year, so you can only make... Historically, it's like 1.7% more a year over the last 100 years. So you can only you can only inflate it at, you know, call it 2% a year. But there's that tweet that circles around like every six months of that asteroid that has all the gold. And if we could just capture it. And, and I, I was, I'm That's like, true. I'm like, yeah. then gold prices would go to zero. Yeah. <laughs> like if there's 50 times the amount of gold ever put on the earth is now we just grabbed it off this asteroid. But it, to your point, though, if you have trend following, you would ride that down to zero and you'd make money shorting gold. Yes. Right. Yes. And so that's that's kind of the the point overall that I've always at least felt an affinity for trend following CTAs is they come at it from the perspective of like your fundamental narrative arguments don't matter. Yeah. I'm going to be invested in 60 markets, both long and short, and I'm just going to follow my probabilistic uh, trend strategy. And I don't have a, a view on markets. My view is only going to hurt me. So, like, for example, let's take uh, fixed income as you know, bonds are going zero to negative to your in Europe. Everybody that has a fundamental perspective is screaming their heads off. Like this is irrational. They're, they're, they're killing the economy. Like they have all these reasons why this cannot happen. Negative interest rates. Meanwhile, the CTA trend followers are just riding the trend. Yeah. And they actually did. That was their best market last year. Right. Uh, and they actually bought German bonds, boons. Right. Um, and you buy bonds. If bonds prices go up, rates go down. So they were actually buying bonds as they're negative. So they were implicitly betting on rates going more negative, which you're right. Any other economist is like, are you crazy? Yeah. Right? This is unsustainable. And they don't, yeah, it's, it's pure math. They, they, could, they don't care one way or the other what the narrative is. It's just, if this is, and that's the all-time example of like, 
Why are you going to buy high and sell higher? Right. This is you're buying negative yields and selling more negative yields, which is insane to anyone who, who studies that kind of stuff. And that's why their discipline is impressive because, you know, personally, they might have a personal opinion that this is insane, but their their formulas and their math are telling them, no, you need to be in this trade. And they, they just get in the trade and they don't let their personal opinion override yeah. and I think the direction. Back to something you said, whatever, 20 minutes ago of like, why can't people wrap their heads around all this managed future CTAs and stuff is because of that. The narrative is hard to explain. Um, you know, if you're just saying, I, I know you heard 23 hours of junk on TV about why negative rates are bad or whatever. And I just say, well, we just bought it because that's what the model did. Yeah. Like it doesn't sit well with a lot of investors. They need a narrative built around the trade. And by definition, you know, most managed future CTAs don't have a narrative. Like they can try and make one up, which is what other people are doing, but it's just, it's just making it up around what the math told them to do. On that note, wrap it up. Well, Jeff, uh, people want to get in touch with you. What's the best way to do that? Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at RCM alts. Uh, check out our blog, rcmalts.com slash blog. Maybe we'll put it in the show notes. Um, and then we're launching our own podcast, The Derivative, hosted by yours truly. So uh, check out that as well on all your favorite podcast places. The most underrated blogger in finance, Jeff Malik. Yes, thank you. Good times. All right, thanks, everyone. Thanks, guys. listening to the derivative links from this episode will be in the episode description of this channel follow us on twitter at rcm alts and visit our website to read our blog or subscribe to our newsletter at rcmalts.com if you liked our show introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe and be sure to leave comments we'd love to hear from you